on this episode of The Jason Wright Show. Uh, basically, we were asked to go up north. The Quaviet and the NV-8 already moved down to Quantree, Quantree Province, of course, in Way City in Tet of 68, and they had already, they had on the move to Way City, and we were able to fight them back with the uh, Army, uh, the Arvins and the, and the uh, Vietnamese Marine Corps, along with all our air support and stuff. And so they wanted us to do what we call, uh, it was because the best intelligence you can get is actually do a, a up-to-date recon, but the really way we can do it because we didn't have satellite and all that crap. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, folks, and welcome to this very special edition of The Jason Wright Show. You know, a while back, I had the honor of sitting down with Medal of Honor recipient Mike Thornton and hearing his story of courage and heroism that ended up getting not only himself, but also Tom Norris, the Medal of Honor. And here's what's really cool about this story. This is the first time in military history that one soldier received the Medal of Honor for rescuing another Medal of Honor recipient. Here's the story. In April 1972, SEAL Lieutenant Tom Norris risked his life in an unprecedented ground rescue of two American airmen who were shot down behind North Vietnamese enemy lines, a feat for which he would be awarded the Medal of Honor, an award that that represents the pinnacle of heroism and courage. Just six months later, Norris was sent on a dangerous special reconnaissance mission that would take his team deep into enemy territory. On that mission, they engaged in a vastly superior force. In the running gun battle that ensued, Lieutenant Norris was severely wounded. A bullet entered his left eye and exited the left side of his head. SEAL Petty Officer Mike Thornton, under heavy fire, fought his way back to Norris's in-battle position to rescue his officer. This was the first time Tom and Mike had been on, the combat, on, on a combat mission together. Mike's act of courage and loyalty marks the only time in modern history that the Medal of Honor has been awarded in combat action to one soldier for saving the life of another medal recipient. I am so honored to have been able to sit down and hear this story directly from Mike Thornton. Also, another cool fact, Mike Thornton was one of the first ever Navy SEALs. We kind of take the Navy SEALs as just a, a, a thing, as these this elite fighting force that we have that, that are legendary, almost to mythical proportions, but they had to begin somewhere. And Mike Thornton was one of the very first Navy SEALs ever. So, I hope you enjoy this episode. I thought it would be perfect as we just came out of Memorial Day and we're we're honoring those who have fallen. I would like to say a special uh, thank you to my Uncle Jake, who was a tank commander at, I think, the age of 19 that died and gave his life in the Battle of the Bulge. I have his flag that that was draped over his coffin here in my office, and and it's one of my most prized possessions. So up there in heaven, uh, Uncle Jake, Thank you so much for the sacrifice you made before I was even a thought uh, to defend my freedoms. And to all of those others who have given their lives, who have paid that most ultimate of sacrifices so that you and I could do, do fun things like create podcasts and share cool stories, 
to all of them and to the families left behind, thank you so very much for the sacrifice that you have given. So with that, to my friend Mike Thornton, thank you so much for this time that we had together. And I hope all of you enjoy this very special episode of The Jason Wright Show. Thanks. Mike Thornton, how are you, sir? Doing great, my friend. Doing great. Well, first of all, I got to tell you, I am so grateful for you taking the time to visit with me today. Uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned on this podcast to all of my guests who have very, very big roles that they are, that they're in, time is the most important and critical non-renewable resource we have. And the fact that you're willing to share some of that with me today, I could not be more grateful. So thank you, sir. Well, with the grace of God, I'm, I'm still here and I'm able to do this. And it's my pleasure and my honor to... Uh, talk with this great audience and see uh, if I can help them in any way I possibly can. Well, let's just kind of tee this up by saying that, first of all, you know, kind of like we mentioned before we came on, that the podcast exists because I love to learn about those who have pursued excellence, that have had amazing leadership roles, that have done remarkable things throughout the course of their lives, and have most importantly exhibited strong leadership, of which you check all those boxes on a number of fronts. And, you know, Navy SEAL, Congressional Medal of Honor, business leader, your foundation is doing remarkable things, author. I mean, where to dive in is kind of hard to pick. So what I'd like to do is just let's go right back to the very beginning uh, of the Mike Thornton life and just kind of tell me where it all started, where you're from, and just let's start there and just see where it goes. Okay, so, sounds great. I was born in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh Back in 1949, and um, as my father said, at the young age of six weeks, I cr crawled over to Spartanburg area uh, up north uh, near the foothills of the mountains. And uh, my father was my greatest, I mean, he was a, a mentor that you can't understand. My dad only had a sixth grade education, but he had his own business, and, and, uh, and he treated everybody with respect. I don't care what your color or race or no matter what it was, you worked for Ed Thornton, and everybody got treated the same, you know. And I've asked guys that have been working with Daddy for 28 years, why do you still work for Daddy? Because he's fair, you know. And uh, he's a man that you looked up, and, you know, he didn't talk a whole lot, but, man, when he spoke, it's like E.F. Hutton, you better be listening. Mm -hmm. And I had a great mother. Uh, she's, she gave us love and, and faith in God and uh, uh you know, I used to tell Daddy all the time I loved him, and he never – I finally got a hug out of him uh, uh, in 1969 when I came back from Vietnam. And I had been wounded, and uh, and after that it kind of opened up. But to tell, for him to say he loved me one year just – I mean, I, I fell off the – I was sitting at a, our house in California, and I fell off the bar stool when he said it. I said, holy crap, what's going on with this man? So that's where I kind of got brought up. But, you know, like you say, my father, he reeked of uh, respect. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just saw the man and the way he treated everybody. And, and that's one reason where I am today is because he is my greatest mentor of all time. I, I wished I listened to him a little earlier in my life. Uh, I didn't. But, uh, but I learned from him for the rest of his life, which he lived into, to be 90 years old. Wow. I've lost him and my mom both, but you know they're they're still they're still in my brain, my heart, and 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 the making of who I am today. You know, Mike, it's a it's amazing the the impact that a father has on a son. And your story reminds me so much of 
uh, one that my dad tells about my grandfather. Very similar situation. Uh, my dad always talks about how whenever he was growing up. Now, one of the things that Papaw, as he was called, one of the things that he would do whenever my dad would play football, if he scored a touchdown, he should have scored two. If he scored two, he should have scored three. So he's real hard on him. And one day, they, they ended up uh, going in together and buying a tire store in Sulphur Springs. And same situation. I mean, my dad had never received a hug or a proud of you. It just wasn't, it just, it wasn't what happened. And uh, one day, it was about, a, I think it was a couple of days before my grandfather passed away, he was about to leave the tire store, and he slapped my dad on the shoulder and said, I'm proud of you. And to this day, my dad speaks of that moment like what you just said, falling off the bar stool. And it's just, it's amazing the profound impact. But those guys were from a different era where it's almost like they didn't want you to let up. So therefore, they weren't going to really show that emotion. And um, it's just, whenever you said that, it immediately, um, it immediately spoke to me. Now, what line of work was your dad in? What kind of business did he have? Uh, it, we did uh, construction, basically, okay. air conditioning. Uh, he did. Uh, I learned how to weld when I was 10 years old. Uh, I used to do ornamental fences and stuff like that. Uh, rock wool. I used to, at the age of 11, I was up in an attic, 160 degrees, blowing rock wool. And the hoses are probably about an eight-inch hose, and okay. I looked like Smokey the Bear when I came out of it. You'd have <laughs> sweating up there and all that. All that's back then. And uh, uh, he, he was, uh, you know. But the problem is. Not, it wasn't the problem. The great thing is, is my father wouldn't do a job that that he'd ask somebody else to do. Yep. So when we sat there one day and there's uh, six inches of water underneath the house and we had to get this house batted out, in other words, insulation, and Dad said, I'll go in there. I said, no, you won't. And I mean, and I had about three other guys, they saw me go underneath that house and you have that roll of bats sitting on your chest to keep them from getting wet and you got those tiger teeth and you're throwing them up in there and and then I came out looking like I've been playing in the mud for about a week, and uh, Daddy said, "Thanks, son." I said, "No, thank you, Dad." Wow. So you know, is is I, I mean, but like you said about your grandfather, that they were born up before the Depression. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. Daddy went to work at 11 years old yep. in a cotton mill, and then your grandfather was probably brought Absolutely. up the same the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. They. I mean, uh, my uh, granddad used to talk about just how amazing it was when they first had electricity. You know, whenever they out in uh, in uh, the small community outside of Sulphur Springs where he grew up, you know, they mm-hmm. when they all of a sudden didn't have to use oil lanterns to read by. I mean, that was a big, big deal. And so, uh, so yeah, it was a different era. So working for your dad, you start to understand some, he's, he's your mentor. You can see what leadership is like. Now, one other thing, how did he treat you? I think I know the answer to it, but how did he treat you in relation to his other employees? The same. same. Actually, he was harder on me than that's, he was his employee. That's what I expected. Yeah, he was harder on me. But he, he, as you were saying, he was trying to mold me into yep. being a leader. I mean, and I learned a lot about leadership from my father. Right. And so then, so you go through high school. And what is high school? You Are you an athlete? Or what does that look like? I was a really a good swimmer. I was a good, but I had dyslexia real bad. And I couldn't, I, I was very good in math. But if I had to read something, mm-hmm. and I had to train myself, and I'd like to tell all the young kids out there, dyslexia is something you can get through. And, and, and I never even knew I had it until my son was, I knew he was studying very hard at the age of 12. 
And uh, I had him test it, and I said, what is this thing called dyslexia? Mm -hmm. And there's several different ways of it as, we, as we've done studies on it now. And uh, basically, you're very, very smart. Your brain's moving, so, but it doesn't take in any. So if I had to read a problem, but to figure out a problem, I was very good. If I had to read a problem, I was stuck because, uh, and that's like the book I wrote. I've never read the book. I've, I've had watched it and listened to it on tape, but my wife's read it to me like six times, and I'd make the corrections because one thing about a person who has dyslexia, they have a great, great memory, and if they see it and hear it, they never forget it. And uh, and I think that's helped me a lot too growing up. So it's okay to have dyslexia. The way I explained it to my son, I said, and I, so I had myself tested, and it comes from the male genes. And uh, the way I explained it to my son, I said, I know you're studying hard and you're doing well and they have special schools and it doesn't make you you know, different than any other person. I said, but we have wires to our brain. And I said, if you have one loose wire and we just have to train that wire to take care of you. And he went on to college and stuff. And I said, but your father, I do. And you're proud of me, aren't you? He said, yes, daddy. And I said, I've got five loose wires. Huh. And I used it by using colored pencils, as you notice on my desk now. There's colored pencils all over the place. And I trained myself until I found out, that, and when he was 12 years old, that what I had is okay. You know, it's interesting you say that. So uh, there's a very, very successful guy in Tyler, a car dealer. He, he, has, he suffered from dyslexia. And then literally, I just did an interview last week with a dear friend of mine, a uh, very successful business guy, philanthropist, author, he has dyslexia, and one of the things that it was, a, I can't remember what the actual statistics were, but of the Fortune 500 CEOs and a lot of very successful entrepreneurs, the number of those individuals of high, high performers that have dyslexia is, it, they're almost outliers as a, as a whole because what people are finding is what you just said. A lot of dyslexics, they, they, the challenge causes them to have to work that much harder than everybody else, and it turns out to yield benefits to them as opposed to a detriment when they have that mindset. And it's, it's really amazing how many people that are in extremely high-performing roles, you'll find out, that they had dyslexia. So I think that you kind of prove, you kind of prove that. Well, I, I think what my father said, he always told me to ne never quit, never give up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and that helped me get through training and helped me get, uh, where I am today. I've, I don't even have a high school education, but I, uh, I've, uh, after retiring out of the military and going all the way through the enlisted ranks and getting a commission and retiring with the, uh, other accolades, um, I don't think anybody goes to war for accolades or medals or nothing. It just happened. But if it was that never given up, never is the reason why I'm still alive today. I've been wounded many times, and no matter what, how, how bad the uh, outlook looked, I looked at the positive side. You right, know, we're right. still here. So I like to tell all those young guys out there and those kids that, you know, just never give up, keep striving, set goals in your life. But when you set that goal and you achieve that goal, you set another goal. You just don't live on your own. So I've owned several businesses and I started this great foundation and Connie and I and my wife and some other great great Americans like Bob Carey he used to yeah. be the governor senator of Nebraska and um, and you know and we keep striving to help the, the, the kids out there we've given out over a half a million dollars in five and ten twenty five thousand dollar checks last year wow. and we're working hard to, to do this again every year with the grace of God as long as he keeps letting me walking and moving and breathing, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing as you're doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. 
is try to better people's lives, and that's what my father always did. Well, you touched on something there that I want to get down into. I want to kind of dig into because you talked about goal setting, and a lot of people talk about well, you know, you should set goals, achieve goals, or whatever. But the the methodology or the execution of setting and achieving those goals can be different for a number of people. How they set them, what they do. First of all, when did you start in your life of saying, okay, this is something I want to attain to, and I'm going to set a goal, and then when did that start to develop, and what does that look like both early on in your, in your as a young man that you've carried through because you are so accomplished, and you have, and I know we're going to get into Bud's training and Hell Week and all of the things that it takes to become a Navy SEAL and then being an author and what you've done with uh, uh, the Met Fund. But when did that start to to take shape? And what does it look like for you to set and achieve goals? What's your methodology? Do you do you write them? Does it? Uh, how do you remind yourself? Hold yourself accountable? Bill? And, you know, what exactly is the methodology for you, Mike? Well, me, I wanted to be like my father, mm-hmm. and I've I watched and by working with him all the time and, and, and daddy worked so hard when i'd come home for 30 days to leave if i didn't go work with my father i didn't but i said i still want to use him as my mentor mm-hmm. and uh i said he's done this and i want to do this and better and uh and it's like going through what i went through training it's called underwater demolition recruit training and you know and we start off with 129 in my class and we graduated with like 12 so wow. uh but you know you, you never quit you know, that was the whole thing, and everybody thinks about quitting. And, and but you know, when you think about it, I said, "What would Daddy think?" Mm-hmm. And I always went back, looked at my father. I said, "Well, he never quit during World War II, and he never quit. You know, with the sixth grade education, he never quit. He's he's provided for his family, and mm-hmm. and my father, uh, he provided. He made everybody's life a better life. Not always his, but everybody else he made better. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted, you know, better my life. Right. So you was having the vision of living up to his standards and beyond. That, that was yeah. your drive. That, that, so. was, that was it. And it continues to be even today. Wow. I mean. So when did you decide, okay, because I know you basically went straight from, I mean, pre-high school. You went into the military very early. Yeah. Right? So when did that start to take shape? When did you decide – that you wanted to uh, join the military and serve, and what was the decision process like that, and, and what was your dad's response to that? Well, and he was very happy. Of course, it was in the hot time of Vietnam, and my mother uh, wasn't too happy about it, but uh, everybody in my family had served. My uncles had served, my father, my uncles on my mother's side had served, uh, you know, and so I, I knew, and then I saw this crazy movie, The, the Five Sutherland Brothers, and that's where, uh, and they all died. They're all from Portland, Oregon. They all died trying to save each other. And I said, that's the way my family is. You know, that's the way my father is. So I made up my mind to be a Navy guy. Then I saw this crazy movie, The Navy Frogman with Richard Whitmar. And, it was, and I was a very, very good swimmer. And... Uh, because being a swimmer, you didn't have to have grades. You just had to swim. And, and my brother and I both swam for in state meets and stuff like that. And uh, I said, well, I can do that. But I, I only knew about UDT. I'll never when, when I went to uh, underwater demolition recruit training. I went through training, and out of the twelve, the top ten percent went to SEAL team. And they said, you'll be a Navy SEAL. Well, we just went through training. I didn't know what a SEAL was. That's what I was going to ask you. Did you even know? I didn't. Nobody even knew what a SEAL was back then. Of course, it's a little bit different now. And uh, and uh, 
but uh, great friends of mine, and I was just with a couple of the guys, Hal Kirkendall and and Mike Lacaz, and Mike's other bunch of great guys, and kind of tickles me some of these guys. I said, well, what class did you go through? He said, oh, I don't remember. I tell you, if you ever been through Bud's training <laughs> or UDT training, you'll remember your damn class. Right. <laughs> they kind of branded on your ass, you know, type <laughs> deal. So tell me about that. So you, you make it through, and all of a sudden you realize not only did you want to be a soldier, it's in your family DNA, but you're, you're pretty darn good at it. You, it's, it. It fits your personality and your leadership skills. And then all of a sudden they come up with this thing called the Navy SEALs that, you know, you're you're one of the elite, so they want you to be there. What did that look like? What Take me through, I mean, because I know you've got, you go through, I guess you go through BUDS, then then it's Hell Week after that. And were they doing Hell Week back then? Well, yeah, we are doing Hell Week, yes. Okay. So, but basically, Hell Week was about the fifth week of your okay. week. They'd break you up. And what they did, they tore your body down. Yeah. I mean, I don't care how strong you were or how, you know, I was a very good swimmer. I wasn't a bad runner, but I wasn't like some of the guys that could run. Right. Uh, I weighed about two two ten when I went into training, right. and I dropped quite a bit of weight and got back up. And they break your body down, then they rebuild it. You right. know, who should sit down and do five hundred flutter kicks or do a thousand jumping jacks? It's stupid. I mean, now we we look now some of the exercise they used to, you know, duck walking with a damn boat on your head. And, well, <laughs> right. now everybody wants to know why they got back problems and knee problems and all these other problems. Right. And, and Stanford University medical team came down there in the eighties, and this is this is about a few years before I was getting ready to retire. Said all this stuff is killing you guys. That's the reason you have all these older guys who got all these problems, you know. And so they changed the outlook, you know. Well, he used to say as the older guys said, "Well, he's not, he doesn't really he's not really a team guy. He can't duck walk with a boat and two people sitting in the damn thing, you know. Right. And, you know, but over the all, you know, we have to believe in changes, and the changes have been good. Right. Uh, uh, so basically, you got to be able to accept changes and 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 get and do it you know you can't just because say, that's the way it used to be right well i mean the weapon systems we got now the seals we have now are much smarter than i was but back then i i i got everybody wanted to be with mike thornton you yeah. know yeah and that and that's uh, and i said i wanted to be the best seal i possibly could right and i don't like to say i didn't go to war for medals and accolades what i really wanted to do is have the respect of my my um, the people around me and, right. I, and everybody, you know. In my last tour to Vietnam, the reason I went, I didn't have to go back, but my CEO said, "Mike, we're sending over these kids. They're brand new, never been in a combat. I would like for you to go over and bring them back." Wow! And uh, that's that's how Tommy and I got together. And uh, of course, everything else is history about getting the medal and everything else. Right. But we brought everybody back, even Tommy, even though he had spent six and a half years in a hospital. Mm-hmm. But everybody came back home alive, and that's and, and that's to me that's my award because, and when I retired, you know, I only invited like a hundred people, and they had over a thousand, some eighteen hundred people at my retirement. So that's wow. as well, wow. you know. Well, I tell you what, there's something you said in there that I'm I'm reading a book now called Trillion Dollar Coach. And it was written by one of the former CEOs of Google about a, uh, a gentleman. His last name's Campbell. I'm drawing a blank on his first name. But Bill Campbell, maybe. Um, but I may, I'll probably have that wrong. I'll have it corrected in the show notes. But he was a, um, a college football coach. Then he goes out to Silicon Valley, 
makes a ton of money, does really well, but he loves coaching. He loves to uh, to teach, and he ends up being a, uh, a performance coach to guys like John Chambers, the you know former chairman and CEO of Cisco, Steve Jobs. All these guys rely on his coaching. He never takes a penny, by the way. He made enough money before he did that. He just loved to coach and develop people. And he talks about how an executive came in to visit with him on a one-on-one one time, and he was complaining because he wasn't getting feedback from his senior managers. Like, I don't know how I'm doing. I don't know what my uh, boss thinks of me, actually. And what Campbell told him, he said, you don't need to worry about what your boss thinks. You need to worry about what your peers think. What do your teammates think? And it sounds like to me you were that guy that realized that right away is that it was more important to you what the guys that were actually doing the duck walks with the, with the boat on you, what they thought of you, what they, how they depended on you. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. You know, team is called team, and it means a thing. And you put your people before yourself. And that's right. what I've always done is put my people before myself. I hate micromanagers right? because they're, they don't know nothing. I, I know my strong points, mm-hmm. but I know my weak points. That's the reason I have Connie and my wife and an, another team to run, uh, as I told you about – our website and all that kind of stuff. Yep. But that, you, but then you have to say you're inferior in some ways. Well, inferior? What the hell's wrong? Everybody's inferior, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't see anybody around this world walking on damn water. Right. I mean, I've tried it, but it don't work. <laughs> right. and, uh, and and I tell you that day in North Vietnam, if I could have walked on water, it would have been a lot easier for me and Tommy because I was a good runner back then. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, you have to, you have to admit to yourself right and some people don't want to admit that they have a flaw or they have a problem and that's the reason i like to tell everybody hey it's okay to have dyslexia it's okay to have this it's okay not to be the 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 greatest guy in the world that's okay you know but be honest with yourself and be honest with your peers i mean uh i mean if i got a problem i'll let my wife know i mean there's some Problems I don't like telling anybody about in medical problems. I don't go around telling everybody about my medical problems. Right, so, right. You know, they're my problems. What my wife needs to know and Connie needs to know because they're they're always there for me, just like my sister is. And right. so I mean, you know, but to go out and you want know, somebody to feel sorry for me, I said, "Good Lord, I'm seventy something years old. Hell, I'm 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 the most blessed guy in the world. I've had a great life and." I've been wounded a hundred times, and why am I here? Only the man above knows why I'm here. And, right. and then when he's ready to pull my plug, I'm ready to go. But yeah. he's given me a great time in my life to have a beautiful wife and children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great friends. Right. Well, before we – and I, I could not agree with you more because one of the things that um, – you know, in a different setting, like in business. And I, whenever I talk to young people just starting their careers, and I tell, you know, most of our greatest wisdom is learned from mistakes that we've made ourselves. And one of my biggest ones you just touched on, if not, it was, I was always that guy that was afraid to ask a question because I didn't want to appear stupid. I already was inferior, you know, uh, uh, in wherever I went, you know, I didn't go to a big name under undergrad school. And then I ended up at SMU for an MBA because I thought that would make me feel better and feel smarter. And, and it wasn't until then that I'm sitting in class and I, I don't want to ask questions, but then all these people who I assume everyone in there is a lot smarter than me, you know, and they start asking questions. And a lot of them were the same questions I had. And what I realized that and it took me, you know, like I said, nearly 40 years to realize it, that to me, some of the greatest, the most courageous thing you can do is ask ask the question, admit the weakness. You're never going to improve the weakness if you don't stand up and say, hey, this is a weakness. You know, magnify your strengths and hone those. But 
find those blind spots and correct them by first just letting people know. And I, I wish I knew who, who uh, said the quote. It, it's pretty profound right there. You said, know yourself. And um, the quote basically says, don't lie to yourself, and you're the easiest person to lie to. You know, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's the way it goes. Now, one more question about the SEALs training, because, um, you know, I, I know you ad nauseum. Everybody's fascinated with the the seals and it is i mean because the the things that you go through the stories you hear and then was the stories of marcus luttrell and 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 guys like that now dan cranshaw that we talked about offline and these guys that have gone on to do remarkable things david goggins who um i just got through finishing uh, his book and it was remarkable but one of the things that that goggins said that i'd like to ask you about even with your upbringing of hard work installing the insulation trying to please your dad wanting to go above and beyond Going through Bud's training, when you have to overcome things physically that if just on the surface, if somebody put on a board, you're going to do this today, this today, this today, it's kind of like Roger Bannister the first time somebody said, you're going to have to run a four-minute mile. Everybody at that time said it can't be done until Roger Bannister did it. What did it mean to you in your life going through that hellish training when all of a sudden you realize you could put your body through physical torment and survive and get through it. How did that change you? And how did that improve your execution going forward? And has it since? Well, I, I think you're going through training. I don't look at the big picture. I don't worry about what's down the road. Right. I got to get down the road. So <laughs> all I do is worry about what I got to do next. What What is it going to take for me to get from this place to the next step or to the next step? Right. And so you got, and that's life itself. I take life one day at a time because you could change one day at a time. A lot of things, uh, you take one moment at a time, but you can't get to that next step until you finish this step. Mm-hmm. And that's like I said, setting goals. Right. Maybe setting goals for me now is hope I live tomorrow. I don't right. know, you know. But like I say, that's out of my control. Right. What I don't have control of, I don't worry about because it ain't gonna change. And worried about all that does is add tension. You know, on it. So if you can't, you have no control over it, why should you even worry about it? Amen. So every time I went through training, you know, they'd come out, this is what we'll do today. And you know, a lot of guys said, oh, my God, how are we going to make it? How are we going to make it? Well, don't worry about it. we got to get to the, the swim first. And after the swim, we get through that. Then guess what? we get the run. Then we'll get the run done. Yeah. And after that, oh, yeah. now we got to go to the classroom. Oh, yeah. it means we can rest in the classroom, thank God. <laughs> oh, well, we got it then. Then, then you got we got to run to the chow hall or you got it because every time you went to eat chow it was a harassment the whole way there i mean dropping doing push-ups doing this doing that mm-hmm. you know but you know the whole thing is you got through that day and you said hey i'm looking forward to the next day right. you know you go to bed have a couple of beers with your buddies even though we weren't old enough to drink we always had guys that are older by us we'd sit in our little quonset hut because it we didn't have that beautiful place on the beach. We had on the bay on these little bit World War II Quonset huts, drinking <laughs> in, in our, our our mattresses about three inches thick, and um, and having a beer with each other. Right. But it was that it was that camaraderie, that friendship, that caring about each mm-hmm. other. And if a guy had a problem, you'd take him to the side. I mean, I helped a lot of guys that couldn't swim. I help them. You know, we go to the pool after after finish, and I'd work with them in the pool, or I'd do right. this, and we had other guys. They're great runners, you know. Right. Heck, so you know the thing is, you got to get through that daily mm-hmm. trend, and you say, "Hey, I can do this." Right. You know, you tell yourself, "Hey, I'm proud of myself." It's yeah. okay to say I'm proud of myself, but don't think there's nothing. There's gonna be something around the corner. 
yeah. that you don't need help. And people help me as I help them. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, you know, don't, if we all could do it, you know, Alabama would only have one football player, but he'd be, <laughs> you know, or, you know, or Clemson. I mean, that's my team. Yeah. You know, I mean, but they can't. They got to do it as a team. And right. that's what the, the, the word team. Right. But I, 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 I'm kind of upset with some of these new kids. You know, I didn't talk about my to it was declassified. I, I was in MaxSoc, and I did some other uh, operations that haven't even been declassified yet. Right. But I never talked about my – Tommy never talked about his operation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but some of these kids, now they come back, well, the war needs to be – well, they're doing it for self-satisfaction. They're doing it the, – I mean, it took me almost 48 years to write a book. Yeah. You know, yeah. these guys are doing it while they're still in the military. And far, far as I'm concerned, they have a responsibility to the teams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have a responsibility to the guys that are still trying to do it the right way. Amen. And don't go out by yourself and say, I'm doing this for them. You're not doing it for nobody. You're letting out secrets. Like Robert O'Neill, he thought, he said, well, I put a bullseye on my back. I got bad news for you, Mr. O'Neill. Mm -hmm. You put a bullseye on everybody's back and everybody with the family's back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. and, and I, I don't know why you think you're such a a better seal than I am. Yeah. You know, what makes you so great? Right, right. It, 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 it <laughs> is a difference in, in mindset for sure. And um, it's been interesting to watch the evolution of the military. But there's in but to see but to hear stories like yours. And and one of the things, you know, that I have a very dear friend of mine, um, Colin Barbado, who was uh, um, he, he was uh, an academy guy who went to uh, West Point and was a commissioned officer. And one of the things that he said frustrated him the most is whenever people would call, call them heroes. Or, mm -hmm. you know, call, and he's like, you know, soldiers don't look at it that way. They look at it as this is what I signed up for. This is my job. And I've always had great admiration for that because I do. I mean, I look at you and, and, and you, know, you have the credentials of by any stretch of the imagination, whatever a hero is, that's what you know, Mike Thornton has achieved, but I know that if I told you that you'd probably say, no, I was, I was executing a mission. And that's, that's just, to me, that military tradition that we have is something that I have always found extremely remarkable. Uh, and it seems to be a common thread for the most part. And now some of that, I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Well, Neil, I mean, I, I, and I've talked to him, I mean, you know, it's, it's done, it's done. You know, the thing is, but it's the responsibility you have. I mean, why did I go back for Tommy? Everybody asked me why I went back for Tommy, because Tommy would have done the same for me. Yeah. That's that camaraderie, that teamwork, that teamship, that yeah. that belief you have in each other. You know, right. and that's the way I am with my family. I'm going to be there for them. You know, you want to talk bad about me, go ahead, but don't mention nothing bad about my family around me. Right. Then you have to really deal with the bad guy. Well, and let's, let's get into this. So, And how long was it, by the way, uh, after you finished um, your buds training and you have made it through and you you get your trident, you are now a Navy SEAL. That you actually went on the mission that would eventually you'd be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for. How was it? How long was the gap between? It was, it was about uh, a little bit over four years. Okay, so you had numerous operations. Yeah, I, I had other tours over there in Thailand and other places, which we I never we never talked about Thailand, yep. of course. What we were doing in Thailand right. is because we were up on the borders. But, of course, back then, it, now everybody in the world knows it now because we're giving Medal of Honors to guys in LERP teams in Laos and Cambodia and mm -hmm. stuff like mm -hmm. that. But, you know, that, <clears throat> you didn't get anything for that. I mean, and I was over there for a year. But, you know, I, I never talked about that. And we didn't even talk, you know, we didn't even talk to the guys in the teams about it. Right. 
because we were told not to, this is strictly confidential. What is the need to know basis? What, and we were basically working for the State Department over there. Tell me this, Mike. I because and this, you know, forgive me. This may sound like a, somewhat of a, a a silly question, but first of all, there's probably not. Whenever you're going on a special ops mission, I don't. Th- there's not a lot of lead time, right? You learn about it pretty sh- in pretty short order before yeah. you actually go execute the mission, right? Because of the, because of that, the secrecy of it. So, as a special operative about to go do something very dangerous with a very limited number of people, uh, usually under the cover of night or something to that degree. As a soldier, how does that impact you? What are you? What mentally are you excited? I've trained for this. This is what I signed up for. I'm about to go do what I what I came to do to defend my country. Uh, what's the? Uh, there's got to be some nerves. Just what goes through your mind once you get the mission? Kind of take take the listener through what that's like to be a Navy SEAL, get your assignment, and then prepare. And you don't have that long to prepare to go get after it next oh, we just had a couple of days the only person knew about the operation was our big boss mm-hmm. uh, commodore shively mm-hmm. uh the, the the his counterpart and the vietnamese right the senior guy they're in charge of all naval special forces and uh and uh and tommy and myself right. well i had to pick three guys well i'll pick two guys that i had worked with before on previous tours of vietnam very good I handpicked them, but they didn't know nothing. To, they just knew they were going on operation. I told them, and I told them exactly what they would be carrying and taking. Mm-hmm. One's going to be our radio operator and stuff. And Tommy and I went over the plan, and uh, and we didn't even let anybody know about it. We just had those two junks, and we took off. And right. uh, and uh, it goes back again. It's no use worrying about it. You know, you're going, so right. you know. So, cause if you worry about dying, or you worry about this, or you worry about that, you have no control. Mm-hmm. If the bullets meant to hit you, it's meant to hit you. Right. You know, you're not gonna ask for it. But so you go in there and you do your operation. You stay focused on what it is, and that's trying to get everybody in and everybody out right. alive. But I'll try to accomplish our mission. Well, we accomplished our mission. We did it all. We found out and got everybody out alive. Wow. Four of us were wounded, but we got. You know, we were able to get everybody out. And um, so, uh, like I say, you don't worry about it. That was out of my control. I was in the military. They asked me to do something, and I know why they asked me to Mm do. I was handpicked by Tommy because at this period of time in uh, in Vietnam, we we trade off uh, a Navy SEAL and a Navy SEAL officer with the the, the Vietnamese LDNs and Navy, uh, Navy SEALs. And uh, this operation, it was no, it was no choices. It was Tommy and I were picked by Commodore Shively, okay, because he used to be my CEO. He was my CEO twice before, once at SEAL Team One, once at EOD School, okay. And he said, he said, I will, yes, sir. But I want to take this one guy. He said, it's Mike Thornton. He said, yes, sir, it is. Wow. So, and Tommy, and I, that was the only time we ever operated. Oh, really? We knew of each other. Oh, really? Background. That was the, we had never operated together. Oh, till that day because so. that was my next question yeah. was, you know, and then how many subsequent missions did y'all did y'all do together none none really <laughs> that was the first one ever i'd wow. worked with the other guys but never with tommy wow and wow. all the enlisted guys all looked knew, knew me real well because they were all at that time all the officers were from the east coast seal mm-hmm. team two mm-hmm. and all the enlisted guys were all from west coast seal team one okay. so they all knew who i was so okay all right so now Let's just tee this up and just uh, take me to that 
that day that you get the the ultimate what would end up being one of the most profound missions let me ask you that wait let me just back up before i even say that mike so there's one that you obviously you received the congressional medal of honor for 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 going back and, mm-hmm. and, and getting tommy so there was a moment in that mission but as a mission in general mm-hmm. was it any more challenging does it any more meaningful as as a d- does it stand out as different or was you know uh was it just another of the missions that just something extraordinary happened? I mean, or do you even think about it like that? Is it? Do you even rank them in far as, as far as complexity and? I, I don't rank the missions. I'd been to other missions. I mm-hmm. thought was just as bad as that. Said right. we weren't in Vietnam. We had right. air support. We had this. We had that. Right. Which is always great to know you have air support. Or we had fast boats that would come up the rivers and get us. And, and these guys have got mini guns on them and. Right. you know 50 caliber machine guns on them and then it really could turn the tide but there had right. been a lot of times we're running for our damn life to get out of there to get that support yeah you know right. so i've been in a lot of a lot a lot of tough spots in my life and i understood that and i never worried about it then you know right. a lot of guys used to say you know why don't worry about anything it's no use worrying about it like i said before if you worry about all the things i talked about you can't stay focused on the job, and mm-hmm. the job is to get everybody out. You know, you right. can stay. some people get so, you know, said, how do you do this? I've had guys cry. Yeah. How do you do this? Why yeah. do you keep going back? Why, 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 why? There's no why about it. It's because I've, I've signed up for it, I asked for it, and I want to be over there to help my guys. Right. So, I mean, the, th- the thing is, in a lot of, I had another officer by the name of Tom, uh, <clears throat> Tom Boyhan was one of the greatest officers I ever served with, mm-hmm. but he didn't believe in medals. So, really? I mean, we did some un- amazing things. I mean, what we did in South Vietnam at that period of time was amazing. I mean, we we, we kicked butt and took names mm-hmm. and uh, things that, I mean, I got, you look around, you'll see some of the pictures in here. Pretty amazing. Us, us and uh, basically, uh, uh but you know, you, you just it's like I said, well, you don't go to war for accolades and mm-hmm. awards. You go there to take care of each other. Right. So all right, so now this mission it comes up. The mm-hmm. the walk us through that. The mission the the when you receive it and what the orders are and kind of just this, you know, take us through the story of what would become this 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 now uh kind of defining moment in, in yours and for sure Tommy's life. Uh, basically, we were asked to go up north. The Quaviet, the NV-8 already moved down to Quantree, Quantree Providence, of course, in Way City in Ted of 68. And they had already, they had on the move to Way City. Right. And we were able to fight on back with the uh, Army, uh, the Arvins and the, and the uh, Vietnamese Marine Corps, along with all our air support and stuff. Okay. And so they wanted us to do what we call, uh, it was, because the best intelligence you can get is actually do a, a up-to-date recon, but the really way we can do it because we didn't have satellite and all that mm-hmm. kind of crap that you have now. And what would you what would that up-to-date recon look like, Mike? I mean, it literally just kind of getting as close as you could to the. No, I got in and went through it. Just went, and, wow. and snuck around in it, yep. and uh, and then we would do what we call a body snatch. Of course, the best way to do it is to capture one of those guys, intel that, and then we'd get a better idea. Okay. Of course, we know what force is because we're going in against the NVA. We aren't going out to the VC. Right. So by having him in his uniform and all this other stuff, that gives us a lot of intel, too. So what we did, 
nobody knew anything about the operation except Tommy and I. And we had two junks. I had another guy by the name of Woody Woodruff, a Navy SEAL, great guy, unbelievable. Hadn't been for Woody, we'd all probably be dead. Tommy and the whole guys would have been dead. And he had a bunch of LDN SEALs on there. And we had, uh, he had uh, two IBS on their rubber boats, and we had two on our boat. And on my boat, we had Tommy, me, uh, uh, Quan and Dang, the two guys I handpicked, mm -hmm. and they had Ty with the young officer. It was supposed to be another guy by the name of Quan that I had operated with, and he was a very good officer. But this guy, Ty, had never worked with him, and I didn't. I wasn't too crazy about taking him. But you know, they said we had to have a Vietnamese officer because this was supposed to be a Vietnamese patrol supported by the American SEALs. Okay, and we were working for MAXOG at the time going behind the lines. So we had to take a Vietnamese officer. Um, so uh, we got the junks. I had already made sure we had all the equipment that I requested and stuff like that. I just told the guys what to bring. I checked their equipment. We checked their equipment. They were ready to go. We got on the junks, and we told the junk CEO just go straight due east. And we went out 15 miles because they can. They got. They got – you know, intel guys, bad guys, seeing because you can only go north or south right. on the beach. So if we went north, they'd call in and they're going north or, the, you know, right. going south, you know, so they'd know exactly what to be looking for. So you go 15 miles out to sea where they can't see you. Right. Then we turned north. Then we went, we traveled up for several hours until we got to our objective. And uh, we made cons with the, uh, at the time, it was the USS Newport News, and the Admiral Board had the the, the, the Navy out there. <coughs> Excuse me. And it also had the USS Mahan out there, which is a uh, is a uh, destroyer out there. And there we go, vector is in. A vector is where you uh, you have two radars shooting a point on land, and that's our insertion point. Okay. Well, right before we're doing, you're setting up for the vector. Then we're setting in. We're setting about five miles off the coast, but it's still dark, and uh, so you, there, nobody would be able to see our reflection or our silhouette. And uh, but during that period of time, us moving in place, the U.S. Newport News had to leave because Quantree was taken being overtaken again by the uh, Vietnamese, the NVA, and the the uh, Newport News the cruiser had eight-inch guns on it, and it had the farthest. Uh, of any gunfire support there. Okay. And they started lobbing. They were getting called in by a, uh, Army Special Forces uh, 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 to calling in the rounds from the U.S. Uh, Newport News. So they vector us in. Well, when they vector in this one radar, the young man was about three degrees off. Well, if you're three degrees off at two miles away, that's not that big. But when you're 15 miles away, okay. and so we overshot our... Uh, our objective, our, our, uh, where we were actually going to do, swim into by almost uh, 14 clicks. And a click is 1,000 meters. Okay. So instead of being in the DMZ or Quaviet, which is right south of the DMZ, the right. Quaviet Naval River Base, we're right on the edge of North Vietnam and the DMZ. We're in the north edge. Wow. So when we saw a river, we thought it might have been the Quaviet. It was the Ben Ha River, which is in North Vietnam. So Okay. And so, just so so the listener doesn't understand, is DMZ, demilitarized zone. So basically correct. what you've gone is you've gone much closer into 
into very dangerous territory than what you thought and what y'all were well, hoping to land, right? Yeah, but up there they had the they had the Russian 188s, yeah, Alicers, They had the tanks up there. They had all the you know. They so you're going have, right into the belly of the beast. But that's you're, right. You don't yeah. realize it. Got but, it. So we crawled up. We uh, the IBS took us in approximately about a uh, maybe a mile, and we swim all our equipment in, mm-hmm. and we got the water's edge, and I'm looking up there, and I said, I don't. You know, I had a starlight scope. Of course, the starlight scopes back then was about three feet long, and weighed a got 18 pounds. <laughs> it's like carrying an M60, an extra M60, and uh, I said, I don't see it. So Tommy said, well, Why don't you go ahead and we'll stay here in the surf zone. I said, okay, and so I went ahead across the beach and got up on top of the dune, and I'm looking down both both ways, and I said, well, let's get Tommy up here and let's discuss what we got a problem, because I couldn't see the river, and this river is like the mountain, not quite as big as the mouth of the Mississippi, but it's a big, big river. I mean, they had LTSs, uh, LSTs going in there, dropping off equipment, mm-hmm. help with the Marines and all that kind of stuff, so... Uh, Tommy, I got Tommy over first, and we kind of set up an area of operation. And then we brought each guy up one at a time. I'd take this little red filter light. When I hit it twice, he'd clear the comp because I'd be looking up and down, and Tommy was watching the, our western flank. Got everybody up there, and we got together. And I said, Tommy, I think we're in the wrong place. And uh, Tommy says, uh, <clears throat> why don't you go north? I said, okay, I'll, say, I'll go by myself. And I said, so. So I took off some of my gear. I had law rockets on me and all this other stuff. And I was just, I'm going to take, so if I have to move fast, I'm going to leave my, uh, I'm going to just take my uh, web belt. And uh, I had magazines on my web belt too besides mm-hmm. the other, and uh, my weapon and a starlight scope. I mean, we had cameras and binoculars. We had all kind of crap. I count them eight frag grenades and some other stuff, but I always kept those with me too. So, Patrolled about 15 minutes up, didn't see nothing, came back to Tommy. And then I patrolled south about 15 minutes, came back, didn't see nothing. I said, bud, I, I don't know, this river's, you know, we're way off, you know. And uh, at that period of time, uh, I said, what do you want to do, Tom? He said, what's your recommendation? I said, well, we don't know where we are. My recommendation is we go back out and rest up the day and try to get in the right position. Tommy said, well, we're already here. They've already pulled away, and Woody he got all the guys that paddled us in, got them all on board, and he went back out so they they, they weren't silhouetted anything, seeing that somebody's off the shore there. And uh, at that time, we had comms with Woody. He said, we think we're in the wrong insertion point, but we're just going to go ahead and do what we call a horseshoe. And a horseshoe is that you stay here, and you go five clicks in, okay. five clicks up, and five clicks back out. Okay. And uh, and he said, what do you think? I said, hey, you're the boss. You make the call. I'm mm-hmm. going to be right there with you. So Tommy took the point, and I took rear security, and we put the Vietnamese in. And usually we're spread out, but I want to keep everybody together because right. it would be easier for us to control them. My Vietnamese was pretty good. Tommy's wasn't the best. Right. But I'd been over there a lot more times than he had. And so we patrolled, and as we patrolled, we did our five kicks, but we we could see bonfires around us. We could hear people talking and stuff like that. And uh, back then, of course, when you have a GPS, everybody right. said, "What would you wish you'd had?" I said, "A cell phone, a GPS." Yeah. Been, you know, but you know, we used to march. You know, I'd do that, and I'd tie little knots in a string. I said, "We've gone, we've gone, 
we've gone a, a, a thousand meters or we're going a hundred yards and that 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 then we right. said then we'd and i forgot tommy i said we've gone so then we went north you know and got our little compass up there so we're going north and we know when we went another five clicks we'd turn around and go back to the east right. and, you know and so we were it was worn out and stuff but we you, the Vietnamese, they hear all these people talking and see all this shit poop on patrols and we're down really low. And the, I look at the, the Vietnamese guys and their eyeballs are about this damn big, about the size of about a half, not a half a dollar, but hell, a damn right. silver dollar. And right. uh, it was uh, kind of cute. And I could tell the officer was really, and I'll explain that story later on. And uh, But Quan and Dane were right there and everything. So we went up to our next point to make our 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 patrol back out to the east and we came up and I'm looking through the scarlet scope and, and I'm looking on top of this plateau and uh, I said I, I said I told Tommy to hold and I went up there and I, we're talking because he kept looking back and checking me and I was you know I said okay you know just we all we're all together no problems keep moving and I said I told him to hold and we hold and I crawled up next to him and I said uh, look up there take the starlight scope he says, holy crap. That's the biggest, I mean, that was a cuss word for Tommy. Gosh darn, holy crap. <laughs> right. And there was a big tank sitting up there, and there's another one sitting off to the side. And he said, I said, what do you think? I said, I know we're in the wrong place now because <laughs> they don't have none of those across the quad yet. Right. So, uh, and then next thing I know, we're patrolling. I said, we're going east now. I said, well, let me take the point. I know you're tired because running point is, is it's not just, uh, it, uh, it's tiring because cutting your way through and all that yeah. stuff and moving slowly, and you're really focused on you know what's going on. Cause that's got to be mentally exhausted. Uh, uh, that's one. It's very mentally exhausted. Yeah. So we're patrolling back out, and I saw this kind of creek. Of course, up where we were up north, the tidal range is 18 feet. Mm -hmm. So um, you go down to just go down to the Gulf Coast down here. It's like four and a half feet. So yeah. you imagine the tidal. So I saw the stream and it was running out, and I said, "Well, the tide's going out." And I said, "Well, Tommy." So I got down inside it, and it was, it was too deep for the guys to walk in. You know, they couldn't do it. But I said, "But it was up, up where they could walk in it." Right. And we did it for three reasons. One, it, our uh, silhouette was way down below, mm -hmm. and we I wasn't worried about us falling in because after seeing all these people walking around and patrolling. And not saying that they got their areas booby trapped, but the bonfires and stuff. And I said, so that would lower us our silhouette. We could move a lot faster, knowing the tide was going out. And and before we were just moving so slow, so we could shuffle our legs and wouldn't make any noise in the water. Right. Now, if we'd have been walking in five inches of water, that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. But not. And so the silhouette moving faster. And and being and not being able to be detected by patrolling, so mm -hmm. we said, I said, yes, get in the thing. Tommy said, I agree with you. So as we're moving back out towards the ocean, I could hear the ocean. Then we heard all this talking, and it was on our right, our southern fl flank, which is on our right side, and uh, and on our left side uh, there was a big lagoon. You ever seen going across the Mississippi River? You see where the rivers change its course. Well, they do the same thing up there. And so there was this big lagoon is about two and a half miles wide of water and about five miles long. Okay. And then and I, Tommy said, check that out. And I said, it. so I took all my gear off, took my gun. I crawled up into this village and it was a stronghold for a quick reaction force. 
And the reason they had these up and on the beach is all in all these uh, very dense uh, palm trees and stuff, and uh, where a lot of this area where it was pretty open. But this is that. So uh, I crawled up there and I counted approximately. Uh, it's about four something in the morning, and I mm-hmm. counted about. I could see the rifles sitting outside and stuff, and and uh, and we figured they had anywhere from sixty to seventy-five guys, and it was more like seventy-five after because that was the first group that we and wow. stuff. So we moved on out, and we came to the ocean. Well, we knew that we had no uh, we had no radio radio because it used the OPRC seventy-seven. It's like if, if you had a straight line like across the water, mm-hmm. you may get five miles. Right. If you're down everywhere else, you got nothing. Yeah. So it's, it's a line of sight type. Yep. And uh, so Tommy said, well, what do you do? I said, well, there's a big sand dune. I thought it was a sand dune. Basically what it was, it was a, it was a big bunker. It actually had a tunnel down inside so that people could sit up and walk. So you had a, a flat thing on the top that was about 25 feet high. Okay. So I knew we had the ocean on our eastern flank. I knew we had the big lagoon on our western flank. I knew the bad guys, we had the creek in between us on our southern flank. And we, as far as we could see, 500 yards back was one sand dune by itself. So it was all flat ground. Okay. So Tommy's on the radio. I move up to the, the point where the bad guys are. I took uh, Ty, the biggest the Vietnamese officer, because I'd never worked with him put him over next to the ocean so if I got flank I could take care of the flank on my western side but he could watch the eastern side and I put Quan and I put him back at rear security and gave him the t- starlight scope and I said if you see anybody you let Dawi know okay. so um, we were waiting there and Tommy finally got gunfire support but they didn't know where we were we didn't know where we were you know, you know we tried to explain where we were right and uh, they couldn't figure it out because they had gone back down to the Quaviet River. Okay. When then when it was mm-hmm. getting times, so they said, "Okay, the Quaviet's right here." So, uh, so that little mistake by that young radio uh, radio guy was really bad thing. But thing. So Quan comes around and tells me, he "says Mike, Mike." I said, "Yeah, Quan." He says. He gives me the signals of two enemy are walking down there. And so I went back and I take the starlight scope. And I'm looking down the starlight scope. One guy's walking on the, the, the low water line, which it was going down to low tide, mm-hmm. and just checking. They had a, a couple little light things. They are just checking for footprints. Well, the other guy was up in the sand dunes. And I'm watching him, and he gets that one about 500 yards away. But he was kind of walking back and forth looking to see if there's anybody because we'd been up there before, mm-hmm. but we just never had gone inland before. We'd just been up there to right. survey. And um, and uh, so Tommy said, Tommy came down and said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, you stay up there and get some communications. And I'll, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take Ty, which Ty was about 5'10". He's a big Vietnamese. He's, he probably weighed 170 pounds. I'm going to have Ty take out the guy on the beach. So I was carrying what they call a hush puppy. It's, of course, against the convention, but it was a silencer. So when you were in really bad situations, you'd have to get up and close, mm. and it, you just go like that. And right. it was a 22 long mm-hmm. that you could lay down the enemy with. And it was for moving in and out of really uh, tight spaces. 
So the other guy was approximately 100 yards behind him in the football field from behind him because he was looking around spending more time than the other guy. Right. Other guy's just tooling down the beach. You know, you got, both of them got AK-47. So yeah. the guy, he, I saw him going around that one sand dune, and I'm watching him. He's coming up close to us. So I took Quan, short guy. I put him over near the western side of the flank just in case he came around that way. But he came up the eastern side, and he came around that bunker, and I took the butt of my gun and hit him right in the head and knocked him out. Wow. And Quan ran around, and he took him, and he, we, uh, uh, we used tie ties at that time, and he, he secured the guy and stuck a, 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 a bandana in his mouth and tied him. And I told, I was going like this to uh, uh, tie the officer, and he was about 50 feet in front of me. Mm-hmm. But with the waves breaking and the guy right on the water line, I said, man, this is a great time. He can just still half dark and, you know, you, you sneak up behind him because he's not even looking back. I watched him the whole time. Was never He never looked back and wanted to look, check on his guy. And I told him to go like this. So he stands up. This guy's up probably 100 yards away with the tide going out. And he yells, lie day, my Lynn. I mean, stop here. And he's got this cap pistol, which you – if you shot somebody between here and that wooden door over there, it may probably bounce off of him. But I mean, because there's because you lose all right. unless, unless you're up there. And uh, and he turns around that AK-47 and he opens fires on him. I said, "Holy crap!" So I'm running down there because I can see he's cutting a trail, but he's a hundred yards off down this way. So I'm running this way. Ty's running back towards everybody else. I said, "Where's this idiot going?" So I'm chasing the guy down. He got to the mouth of the, the trail going into the village up mm-hmm. there, and I dropped him one knee, and I shot two rounds and hit him in the back, and he fell to the ground. Cool. Well, when he shot that burst of rounds, uh, when he shot that burst of rounds, everybody up there didn't have radio. So what they'd do, they'd, they would uh, contact guys, and they'd shoot so many rounds and so many rounds, and it meant different, kind of like a, you know, a Morse, Morse code, code or idea. something like mm-hmm. that. And it, meant, it meant something. Mm-hmm. I said, hopefully, I hope this doesn't mean trouble, but I'm, it did. So I look up, and here comes about 75 bad guys coming after me. And I went running back across the creek bed. At that time, it was basically empty except for the water that was mm-hmm. called in there. And Tommy sees me, and Tommy runs down with a law rocket, and he shoots the raw rocket into the tree line. He didn't. He's not trying to hit anybody, but right. he's just trying to hit a tree to get a big explosion and give me to for me to break contact with these guys because right. I wasn't gonna be able to run all the way back with them shooting at me. Right. It worked. I got up on the point. I told Tommy, I said, I'm gonna move up here. I put Quan over on my eastern flank, about 50 yards behind me where I could keep my eye on him, mm-hmm. and I put Ty at rear security because <coughs> I knew I couldn't count on him. And Tommy got back up there. So we got communications. We got communications. And I said, okay. Well, the guy we captured. Tommy had him up there, and he pointed out on the map where we were. So Tommy was able to give him the coordinates. And he said, boy, you really are off course. I said, tell us about <laughs> Right. So I was up on the point. So it was, it was me and Quan. Uh, Dane was shooting from the top. He had the radio on his back. Tommy was on the radio, and then he'd shoot. He, he saw somebody trying to flank me down the western side. Then he's going back to get the, the the coordinates where we were at and stuff like that because we need to get that gunfire support up here. And the U.S. man was on the way, and Woody found out, and he's coming up charging with the two junks with the other 10 LDNN Vietnamese SEALs. And um, 
we got up there and uh, the firefight started. Well, what I did, I'd got out on the point, and these guys were well trained, but they 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 would come up to the sand dune and they start raising their head, and I could see the top of their head coming up, and I'd do a headshot about an inch in the sand, and I'd get them every time. So I'd pop a few over here, then I'd roll over here and do the same thing. Then I'd roll, I'd move forward and I'd throw a grenade over there. Then I'd drop back and throw a grenade from back there. Back then I could throw the baseball really well. And uh, then I'd move over to the other flank. But well, when they tried to, you know, flank me on my thing, there's my boy Quan, which I knew he, he was a damn good shot. And he would lay them down. And they said, so it gave them a false pretense as how many, if we had right. 10 or 15 guys or right. 20 guys, because they said, good Lord, we're getting hit over here and here and here. Mm -hmm. Well, this had gone on for almost two hours. And uh, by the, which I have the Mayhan log right here for the story, the, the movie that we're doing is, uh, and I was going through it, and they, when they got contact with Tommy, and Tommy said we're taking fire. They put it in their log, and I got a copy of their log, so we knew exactly. And when we, when the radio was blown away, they took another log, no more communications. And I said we're going, we're going in the water. And that's when Tommy was he, he said. Uh, so we worked our way all the way back. Well, I was about 25 yards from the, uh, the bunker where Tommy was. Mm -hmm. And Quan was right back over here next to me, and Ty was still on the other side. And so um, at that period of time, uh, I, I don't know how many people I eliminated. I was kind of laughing. Tommy said, what are you laughing for? I said, crying ain't going to do us no good. You know, wow. just we kept things. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. no, it's no use getting yeah. it is what it is. You, you do what you can do. And the only thing I was doing was fighting for everybody's life. And uh and I'd, I already eliminated a bunch, a bunch of people because I was down to like two magazines left, and I had 780 rounds, and I only wow. shot like one or two rounds every time. I wasn't much on this automatic stuff because wow. I knew those rounds were had to, each one of them had to count. Mm -hmm. And I had already gone through eight frag grenades, and I've gone through my two, uh, my two, um, uh, my to break contact up sometimes I threw some smoke out there to kind of cover me and as I moved to another place when they got closer because right. it was close. So I'm at this one end. And so this guy, you see that grenade over there? It's called a Chicom grenade, that one with the wooden handle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's what they used. They were really cruelly made. But on the inside, you unscrew those two screws, and it's lead, and they've got it, they've got it where they've taken uh, like a drill or something, and they've scraped it so he's got like a little quarter inch uh a uh, quarter inch uh, like a frag grenade right where we have more like ball bearings in there this has little things so it's it's basically stuffed with a stick with tnt right. stuff they got out of our bombs that didn't explode wow. <laughs> and then they have this and they have i'll show it later on the little pull string i'll show mm -hmm. it to you and you pull this pull string well it's what it's like a match mm -hmm. down there and you pull this string out well, we had captured a bunch of those, and we used to take them and test them and go, uh, American grenade, the, uh, and it would go, the American is four sections. You, you pop that pin, you got 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, kaboom. Right. And uh, this here, the, the one that went off the fastest was 18,000, and the, the longest one was about 29,000. Oh, wow. 
So I yelled grenade, and I grabbed that grenade, and I'm going 1,000, 2,000, because I'd already thrown all my grenades, and I threw that grenade back over. I'm going 11,000, 12,000, the damn grenade comes back over, because they knew how long it took. Oh, no. I'm going, good God Almighty. I said, I'm going 20,000, 21,000. I threw the damn thing. I'm going 28,000. And they came back over. I said, it's got to go off, because, I mean, we threw hundreds of those out there. Oh, my there. gosh. And 29,000, 30,000 as long as the, 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 unless they were just a duck. Right. And I turned over and the grenade went off and I was hit six times in my back. Oh my and I yelled and Tommy's yelling, Mike, buddy, Mike, buddy. And I wouldn't say a word. I'm just laying on my back because I know those guys are coming over and they did. Two, one came around each side and one came over and I, I eliminated all four of those guys right there. And uh, they're all falling back. Well, this t two hour and 51 minute firefight, I said, I don't know what's going on, but it's not good. Tommy said, why, not, why is it not good? I said, for them to fight us for all this time, it seemed like just a few seconds, but after we found out how long it was, and you know, we knew it was ours because we'd, 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 they'd stop and kind of fall back and then they'd move forward. For them to take this much real estate and fall back, and I t took my binoculars and I was, I'm looking over. I said, Tommy, look across the lagoon. It was the uh, 681st NBA Battalion was coming in, and they were coming in on trucks, and they were surrounding us, and but they were coming around the lagoon. They jumped in the creek bed. I could see them, and they were going around the other end of the lagoon coming up, and you could see Tommy's looking through his binoculars. Of course, he had a 25 feet higher, so he had a better view. He said, I counted over 100, and he said, there's hundreds behind them. And I said, Tommy said, we need to fall back. And we fell back to that one sand dune behind yeah. us to the north of us. And that's when I could see the Ben-Ha River, the mouth wow. of the Ben-Ha. And, uh, and Tommy said, you fall back, me and Danga, cover your retreat, then we'll come back. Well, we got back, and I'm yelling for him to come back. Well, Dane came back. He had been shot through the radio twice. He had two pieces of metal lodged in his back, so the radio was no good. And I said, where's Dawi? He said, Dawi's dead. That means where's the lieutenant? He said, Dawi's dead, Mike. He's shot in the head. He's dead. I mm -hmm. said, stay here. And him and Quan both grabbed me. I said, stay here. Cover me. Well, when I did that, went back from Tommy, the Vietnamese officer jumps in the water and swims away. Oh, really? So when I came back, when I came back, I see Tommy, and he's laying on the side. He had been shot through his left temple. And the whole front part of his um uh, Forehead was gone, his eye was gone. He's been completely re con uh, reconstructed for his eye and his stuff. His lower part of his brain, the front lower part of his brain, had been hit, and the bursa was busted, was laying out. So these guys came up the wall, and I eliminated them. Then I grabbed Tommy and threw him on my uh, back. And I saw a smoke round, but I didn't know. I, it was a, something from the, the sea, but I wasn't sure what it was. So I grabbed Tommy and put him on my back, and I was running down the, the thing, and Tommy had called fire for effect because he saw the smoke round where it landed. He said, fire for effect. And the, he, they put it right on top of us. Oh and when I'm going down the, the bunker, I'm going down the big bunker, Tommy, with Tommy on my shoulders, the first round hit right at the base of the north side of the bunker, and mm -hmm. the concussion blew me 25 feet in the air. And of course, I don't know if you've ever been um, of concussion like that. We talked, yeah. but the, it's like taking your hands and cupping them and 
put in somebody's head and hit them in the ears as hard as you can. Mm-hmm. It's your equilibrium's gone. Yeah. And I knew I, the bad guys were there, and I could see my gun. And I knew I only had one magazine left in my gun. And I see my gun, and I knew the bad guys are still coming after us. And I grabbed my gun, and I went over and grabbed Tommy. And he looks up with that one eye and said, Mike, buddy. Then he went unconscious and said, the SOB is still alive. Yeah. I grabbed his gun because I knew I was out of ammunition. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and he still had his vest on. I could tell that he had rounds in there. So I ran back. There's my boy, Quan and Dang out there covering me, you know, killing guys left and right. And as they're chasing us and sand's flying, I'd stop. Not, not, I wouldn't slow down. I'd just kind of run, start running backwards a little bit and open. Uh, I'd open up an automatic then just to try to get, a, get them down. Then we ran and we got to the um, uh, sand dune. And they said, Mike, what do we do? I said, we swim. And about that time, we did what we call leapfrog. For and basically, leapfrog means I, I yell one, one stop, give the line of fire to the next side, and you go around like okay. this, like you used to do as kids, yep. leaping over each yep. other. But this is a way that you always got five, somebody firing at the bad guys, yep. and I could see them coming down from the uh, north. They had already got around uh, between the uh, lagoon and the Ben Hot River, and. Uh, and we got in the water, and I got Tommy, and I got him in front of me, and uh, what I'm using him like a surfboard. And like I, I said, I'd already been wounded. Well, when I was walking, going through the water, somebody shot me through my left calf, so I was hitting my left calf. So I had Tommy in front of me carrying him, and then what I do, I push him underneath. We had like six. Um, lines of surf coming in mm-hmm. so the last thing you do is do your uh, life jacket because all that's going to do is pick you up yeah. and carry you yeah, back yeah. in so i kept pushing him under there i could see dang out in front of me i could see kwan off to the uh he was to the south of me but he's in front of me and i had tommy so i knew we had everybody going in that period of time so we got out there and got out there then when i got through the surf zone I put my life jacket around Tommy, and it's the old UDT life jacket. Looks like a, it's got like an H harness that you bring around mm-hmm. and you tie together. Well, yeah. I put that over my neck and I started swimming, and uh, as fast as I could, and uh, I was doing the breaststroke because I had Tommy on my back. While you've it, got a concussion, you've been shot in the calf, and you've got shrapnel on your back from it, a grenade. Yeah. And you're, so now, and now you're swimming out with with, with Tommy. Tommy on my back. Wow. And then I look to the south, and you could see the bullets. And I'm saying, God, don't let them hit me now, because the bullets, as you see these moves, bullets going through. Yeah. I could just, as I was breaststroking, I just see those bullets going everything and like that. So I could see Dang, and he was still ahead of me, but I couldn't see Quan. Then I look over to see Quan, and he had been shot through his right buttocks. And he couldn't swim, and he was trying to swim. And, and they're not the best swimmers. I mean, he wasn't. He was an okay swimmer, but without his, with his legs, he was yeah. having a hard time. So I swam down and got Quan, put him in front of me. I put my arms underneath his armpits, and he held on to Tommy. Then I breaststroke after we got out of the range of fire, and that's when I did the first medical bit with Tommy. And I took two four by four gut wounds and put it over his head, and. Uh, and um, then we swam for approximately three hours, and we finally got picked up by Woody. And are you just you're just swimming out? Is no, we started after we got out of the range of fire, and we were behind the okay. way. Had the waves going. This was in the, late in the afternoon. Okay. And the tide was coming back in. Okay. So by us going south, okay. I knew by going south, that's where the good guys were. Okay. Just going to sea, and Woody came up looking for us. I wouldn't give up looking for us, and wow. uh, uh, he found. 
Ty, the officer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when he said, where's Mike, where's Tommy, where's Dane Quant? And he says, Tommy's dead, because that's the last word he heard from Dane. Mm-hmm. Dane and Quant are swimming. So Woody told them, to, the other boat, to go look for them. So they came and looked for them. So he says, Mike's missing. And that's the last song he saw. He just saw me running back. He didn't know if I was dead or alive, yeah. anything. Yeah. Well, uh, we saw the boat come in, and I, I'm swimming with two guys on my body. And uh, the boat gets up there, and I'm just physically, mentally just exhausted. And uh, so we got Tommy. They put down a, a rope, and I tied Tommy to I uh, put a big bowling in it and, and slid his body in there and picked and pushed him up, and they got Tommy laying on the ground. Then we got Dang and Quan up there, and then there I was trying to get, and I couldn't. I had no more strength. I couldn't pull myself up. Usually I could do sixty pull-ups, yeah. and I could. And so they finally pulled. <laughs> they dropped that rope back. I put Tommy in, and I, I put my foot into it, and I was grabbing. And I was trying to hold up, and all those little Vietnamese up there trying to pull my two hundred twelve-pound ass up. <laughs> and uh, it was funny, but when I got there, I said, "Give me the radio," and I called Woody. And I said, "We're all on board." We have uh, a very senior, uh, we're all wounded. Uh, Call the Newport News because I knew they had a doctor on board. Mm-hmm. Tommy's got a very, very, I don't think he's going to make a head wound. Uh, I've been hit, I've been hit seven times. Quan's uh, lost the right part of his buttocks just to get these guys, and, and Dane's got two big pieces of metal, like shrapnel wounds in his back. What do you get on there? Oh, I'll meet you. I'm steaming towards the Newport News now because he was like several clicks below me. Mm-hmm. I said, uh, let, the, let the Admiral know they go go out with the Navy Blue. And then when I got there, the Admiral called me up. So I'm doing whatever I can to do with Tommy. Well, I was talking to the doctor. That actually, and the, the great thing about this is that this is at the end of the war, and we knew we were going to get a treaty with the North Vietnamese to get Admiral Stockdale and Bud yeah. Day and Leo Thorne, that's all these great Medal of Honor recipients. And uh, and they had everybody at Clark's Air Force Base in the Philippines. Well, in April of 1972, they started pulling all the American troops out. Mm-hmm. And the last group that left was February the 5th, 1972. So we had no specialty doctors. We had no, you know, wow. like surgeons. We had no nobody there. So... I called in. We got Tommy up there, and I was talking to this doctor. He's a lieutenant commander. He's a general surgeon, but he says, this guy's not going to make it. And I said, well, as long as we're going to do everything we can possibly do. So I called I called Ryan McCombie, which was my officer that I worked with in, in my team. I called Ryan. I said, I'm medevacing Tommy right now. Um, I have to go talk to the admiral, uh, meet him in Da Nang. So he called, got a helicopter, flew down to Da Nang, and uh, he called for a special extraction for Tuinan because we were we were about a forty five minute flight from Da Nang up to Tuinan. Maybe it, it, we were northeast of Way City, mm-hmm. so we were a little bit more than an hour. So he said, "I'm taking off now." And I said, "Well, the, the medevac's coming out of Da Nang to pick Tommy up and then take him back." I said, "What are you gonna do?" I said, "I'm gonna stay here because everybody else is injured except for Ty, and I'll send Ty back with Woody." Um, uh, and I'll see you tomorrow. And I got in, they had a helicopter waiting on me, and I flew down. Tommy, it took us 19 and a half hours to get a medevac from the time of the op- him being shot 
to Da Nang, and they sent over a 140, uh, 141 medical. That used to be the big cargo planes instead of the C-117s now. And they had a full medical team on there. They flew them at Da Nang back to Clark's Air Force Base. And his surgeon was a guy named, and he just passed away, uh, Wally. And um, he was actually a guy that helped invent the coil system, mm-hmm. you know, where they do up in yep. your brain stuff. And he was a very senior doctor, and he felt he needed to serve his country. So when he came into the, the military, they made him a colonel. Wow. Yeah, and he went and and Wally is the one that saved Tommy. He said he, I talked to Wally after the first Tommy's first operation was almost twenty hours long. Good. And I talked to Wally. I asked him to please because I would I couldn't go over to Clark's to see Tommy. And um, uh, so he he called me every day. And uh, but back then all we had was that crazy ham set. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me now? Over, <laughs> right. over, right. over. And uh, but we'd send messages. He would send the, the blues back to the command to Captain Shively. Then I was down. Yeah. This time I had moved down to back down to headquarters down yeah. outside of Saigon because he wanted me to brief him. Right. So we went down to brief him and brief the admiral and everybody else. And uh, so we're down there, uh, um, and I took both Quan and then with me to Saigon because they were both injured in that way. They were near their families, and mm-hmm. we got better medical care for them down there. There was, uh, we did have doctors there, and they had Vietnamese doctors who were pretty good, but we still had uh, surgeons and stuff down there that could help. So Quan comes walking on the uh, on the crutches, and he comes to me and says, Mike, said, yeah, yeah, Quan, I work with you no more. I work with you no more. And I said, why? He said, I always get shot. I always get shot. I said, yeah, but I always bring you back alive. He said, good point. Good wow. point. <laughs> so, uh, so basically, Tommy was medevac in November from Clark's Air Force Base, and it was back in Bethesda. They flew him straight nonstop to Bethesda. I think they had to stop over in Hawaii refueled and to, to Bethesda, Maryland. He spent approximately six and a half years there. Went through twenty-nine major operations and uh, had to put all these different. You know, first of all, they had to do something to hold the 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 brain in place because he lost the front lobal part of your brain, which basically the front lobal part of your brain, what taste, uh, smell, a lot of that stuff. Of course, the main part of your brain is back in the back part of this, as to the nervous system and all that stuff. And they had three plates in his head and. and uh, I got a thing in March. Somebody came in and said, you know, you've been put in for the Medal of Honor because they had to put me in for the Navy Cross. And, it was, and John McCain Jr., which is Senator John McCain's father, upgraded. Of course, he's in charge of the whole Pacific operations. And the reason he was supposed to be on our next Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the reason he didn't take it, and Admiral Moore stayed in for another four years. I gave Admiral Moore Joint Chiefs for ten, uh, eight years. Is because he wanted to be because the only person that can overcall his his uh, job, just like in Central Command, is uh, when he's Pacific Fleet, is the President of the United States, and he wanted to be there to make any decisions. They were gonna let John McCain trip the senator yeah. out, but he he says no. He said my father would never talk to me. <laughs> so they let everybody out, and uh, I met Admiral Stockdale and. Um, I went back in on May the fifteenth, 
and receive the medal of honor. And what, and, and so, of course, I know we've talked about it. You've mentioned it a number of times. You don't do it for the medals, but it is such, I mean, you breathe rare air whenever you're a, a Congressional Medal of Honor winner. I mean, the bottom line is it's a very, very uh, small number of individuals that have been honored in such a way. What did it mean to you? I mean, did... Wh- I think it meant more to my father than it mm-hmm. did me. I really, I really, you know, they had a little piece of tape, and I thought I'd, I was going to be the youngest E7 in the Navy, wow. and I thought I was going to get that, but no, they didn't, they didn't. He said I, they figured they, they said if I had more time in the military because at that period of time I, I I only had like five and a half years in or something. And how old were you at this point? Huh? How old were you at that? When point? I received the medal? Yeah. Twenty three years old. Good grief! I so mean, Mike, twenty three. So so by the way, so just for the listener, going back to that unbelievable story, you're a kid. You're oh, talking about I a was, kid. I was twenty two years old when I led that operation. My. Gosh, and uh, so uh, it was. It just goes goes back about you never give up, you never quit. And leadership is something that you learn. I, I think some people are born with it mm-hmm. more than some people. Yeah. I, I you got to believe in yourself. And my father made me believe in myself. And you're yeah. not t- afraid to take risk. And I, like I said before, you know we go make mistakes, like you said too to me. You, know, you learn by your mistakes. Yeah. When I had my command, I, I let guys make mistakes. As long as it wasn't causing somebody in danger mm-hmm. or a lot of money, then right. I'd step in. But right. you, you learn from your mistakes, as you said. And and I tell all my young officers that work for me that you listen to your NCOs. They've been around for 20, 30 years, right. and they've, they've been there. So yeah. I don't say you aren't, you aren't going to make the decision, but right. you need to listen to what they had to do. I found out some of my best ideas from E3s. Guys hadn't been in the military for more than a year, you know. Mm-hmm. <coughs> because what I'd do with them, said, if you were in charge, what would you do? And all these guys would hold up their hand, and me and my master chief, I wouldn't let the officers be around. Mm-hmm. My master chief would sit out there, and somebody said, boy, that's a dumb idea. I said, no, it's not a dumb idea. Yeah. It's a very good idea. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, and I think that you bring something up that I've often told, um, you know, young managers. One of the things I learned early on, because I told you, I mean, when I bought my first business, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Mm -hmm. And it showed a lot of times. But one of the things I learned in in managing or directing others is that little question, the confidence that it inspires or that it instills in the subordinate. uh, When you just say, what would you do? What do you think? Because they're not used to hearing that from the boss, you know, it, uh, and so I think that. But and I think it also gains a respect from them that oh wow, you know, uh, my CEO will listen to me or what I ha- my input actually matters. So I've tried to. I've got. You know, that's one of the things that I learned that if you just ask somebody that very simple question, what would you do? Now you may have no intention of taking their advice. You may know exactly what you're going to do, but I've used that as one, yes, to gain some of the best ideas and perspective from somebody that has a completely different view, but also to instill confidence in the people that are with you. You know, the medal I wear with much pride, you know, what it's given me the ability. I mean, you look through my office here, I got pictures of me and Ross Perot and Tommy Franks and Jim Mastin. I mean, I've known, uh, Secretary Manis for 36 years and, and asked questions and Admiral Stockdale and Bud Day and all these great guys. The first Medal of Honor recipient I ever met in my life was Jimmy Doodlittle. Yeah. Wow. And then he, guess who introduces me to two years later? Yeah. Omar Bradley. Holy. I mean, just wow. the presidents. I've met every president since Johnson. I mean, uh, wow. 
uh, I didn't. I didn't say I would vote for him, but I just said I'm right, right. very. Uh, Miss uh, President Nixon was my president. Put yeah. my medal around my neck. Great, great American. Yeah, love this country. And I had the honor to sit down and talk to Gerald Ford, and, and of course uh, President Reagan, which uh, really was one of my favorites. Um, both the Bushes, Bushes, mm-hmm. and um, we just lost, of course. Uh, three great men this last year or so, President Bush 41, Ross Perot, and T. Boone Pickens. I'll be going to Mr. Pickens' funeral on yeah. Thursday. Yeah. But it's given me ability to listen to stories, and they <coughs> said, so I do this. Like yeah. this guy right here is the largest stockholder in the middle and uh, waste management. He started out as a, a Greek son and working going to houston went to korea and going to houston and um getting a gear degree in engineering <coughs> excuse me went back to pittsburgh pennsylvania and came up with a machine to take steel belted tires and make it up and melt it down and use it for to fix potholes and anybody's ever been to pittsburgh there's a lot of damn potholes up there <laughs> and he started his own hazardous waste stuff and things like that and just a great american and he he's the guy who gave me my first job and he, i learned a lot from listening to him mike let me ask you this because you have been around and had such a had a front row seat to some of the greatest the most courageous smartest bravest individuals uh that have ever been what's the common thread you see amongst each and every one of them? if there's one if there's a couple of identifying qualities what would you say it is their leadership ability mm-hmm. they ask questions asking questions they ask questions and uh you know you may, like you say you may not hear what you want to hear but mm-hmm. they've lived it and you know i tell my son you don't do what i did do what i try to tell you to do you know and right. I, I always try to listen to my father like i said sooner right. than later but you know the thing is that's the reason I tell all these kids when we go talk. I try to get out to the teams at least eight times a year to talk to all the classes. And yeah. I talk about, you know, they hear all these stories about Mike Thorne. God, I want to be. No, you don't either because you won't be in the Navy very long. <laughs> <laughs> don't do as I did. Do as I say. Yeah, and you, and, and uh, I'm very proud of these kids. And uh, uh, Admiral Olson is our first four-star. Eric and I are best of friends. We travel around and try to talk to the kids and things like that. And, of course, Put Bill McRaven through uh, over there at UT and stuff, and uh, wow. I look at all of the admirals, Burt Callen and all these other. I mean, we have two great retired vice admirals working up there in uh, Secretary of Defense right now. They, they call he calls them their port and starboard. Uh, you know, they're working their butts off for this great nation called America, and we do live in the greatest country in the world. Because I've been to ninety of them, and there's nowhere like uh, this country of ours. Well, you know, and I think that you're proof positive of that, uh, Mike, and that you, you you've come a long way from installing ins- insulation in uh, in South Carolina, you know, for your dad and and construction to, and like you said, you've met uh, multiple presidents and what you do now. Uh, it's 
you know, that is what America is. It's not who, what your last name is. It's not where you come from. It's what you do with what you've been given, and that even if that is not a lot. And yeah. I think you've, you, you've, you've exhibited that uh, in spades. Well, you know, the thing is, is you've got to believe in yourself, and so many people are a hand out, not a hand up. And I'm, and that's what my foundation does. I give a guy yeah, a I hand up. I want you up. to talk about the foundation yeah. so that people understand what it is. Well, it's a small foundation, but we uh, – I. I used to do a lot with the, uh, uh, the Wounded Warrior Project, but 20 years ago, I, me and the guy it was started it, got into a little thing, because I used to give my own time and my own money, and I'd go back and teach guys how to dive and said, you know, even though you had you a double amputee or a single amputee, but if I felt that, the, you know, and then we'd take these water scooters and I'd we'd get them down, let them ride around in there and just give them a, you know, make them feel like, hey, I'm still part of the group, right. you know. And I said, you know, you guys got all this money in the bank. We weren't doing something with it. And uh, he said, you know, of course, when they finally, in Bush 43 and I had a discussion about it, he said, well, you got to give somebody. They always give me, yeah, they write a million dollars to the Fisher House. They write a million dollars to your organization. They write a million dollars. But when you're raising $50 million, that ain't nothing. Because really and truly a 501c3, as long as you give – I think that to make it happen, you got to give like seven percent or seven and a half percent or whatever you make. Then the rest of the money, you you know, right. and I mean they had two hundred eighty-one million dollars to the bank. So I said, man, I can't handle this. So myself and Connie, and uh, with the uh, suggestion of a great friend of mine, he he has a pyramid hotel chain out of Boston, and uh, him and. Said, Mike, we believe in you. We know you'll do the right thing. Mr. Perot was one of my uh, donors. Uh, Dick Grazo, uh, Mr. Pickens, uh, a bunch of great Joe Ferran, Matador. That's an interesting guy to talk to. And you talk about leadership. He runs his. He runs Matador like a family, just like he does. Same. His, his father and I. We kind of Joe and I talk together all the time. And I said, okay, so. Uh, we, I said, let's do it. And so Connie and I got together, and Vic Lattimore used to have Lattimore materials up there. He's the guy on the right side of that picture. And Connie and Vic and I have been friends for 20-something years. And and Vic was he, – he, he retired and sold his company. Uh, and Connie was saying, well, I'm looking. And I said, let's do it together. And uh, we have. And it's been me and Connie. And we've been through some tough times. Uh, yeah. All the money at our first, but we've been now well, about seven years, you know, since we came out with the idea and, and getting, you know, our bylaws brought up, make sure we're every way legal, and are basically we're here to get a hand up. I don't ask any money back. It's not a loan. I'm not a bank. Right. You know, I'm just trying to get. But we get scholarships out. You know, uh, they have to keep a standard. I don't ask for A's. I ask for. A three five, which I mean two five, which is a C plus. Mm-hmm. You know, I see that we keep Connie and I. We look at the report cards. They guess, you know, we keep going. And all the kids that we're doing right now, they're kids of their they, their families were unable to afford it. But right. you know, I go through there. We do our due diligence. Our DD two fourteens. Our DD two three zero eights. Or if there are medical problems, uh, we write a check. And I've got this great board, as I said before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it only takes one vote. Just mine. Right. You know, there's no votes here. Yeah. We just had a uh, 
myself and uh, Rainy, my wife, which is my partner, my soulmate. She, uh, we were traveling and we get a phone call and uh, from a guy and he says, "Hey," and Rainy and I were given a scholarship under the name of Eric Christensen. Eric was the senior uh, the senior guy that was killed in the Red Ring operation, okay. and we get a scholarship every year to Gonzaga. Well, I never knew there was a Gonzaga High School. I thought I was looking yeah, at Spokane, Washington. Yeah. yeah, so there was quite a few. And uh, we give it in Eric's name every year. Wow. And we're out there giving this. And I get a phone call from a guy. And he says, hey, Mike. And uh, then this was in uh, November, right before Thanksgiving or December. I, can't, I think it's the first of December. And him and I, he's part of the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation. And I give about fifty thousand dollars a year to that but mm -hmm. we give out scholarships and other things to help uh fall in law enforcement on active duty and marines and they do help out the seals too because i and um and uh so he calls me up and says mike i said yeah and he says we got an old world war ii vet and he has no furnace and he's in saginaw michigan and it's about 13 below zero, and I said, well, give me his name. And I said, give me his DD-214. So he was in the Army in World War II and mm -hmm. uh, this. And I get told Connie, and Connie and I were sitting here. I said, get on the phone and call, you know, who's a good furnace company in Saginaw, Mission. And she called and told the guy, I said, I'll FedEx a checkout to you right away. And he said, no, we'll do it, and we'll have it done. And next day, I get a phone call from him. And they had a brand new furnace. It was only like six thousand dollars, you know. Wow. He said, "I don't know why I deserve to do this." I said, "You're a veteran because I give to all veterans. I yeah. don't care if you Vietnam or World War Two or whatever." Right. I mean. And and so that was in December and rainy and Connie were kind of tearing up and stuff. The hell, I was too. So and uh, so uh, in March, my wife and I were in New York. It was, it was the day before my birthday, and I get a. Uh, email from him he says mike i just want to let you know i still don't know what i deserve out of that furnace but my wife got sick and just passed away yesterday but she died warm and i want to thank you for that wow and if i don't wow you know. so it's like i say these are just hands up everybody's not as as lucky as me i've been very lucky in my life you'd say i'd be sitting at this desk and all this stuff and look about from that damn redneck hillbilly and i am a redneck and you know cherokee indian irish scottish screwed up as hogan's goat and, you know <laughs> and i'd be sitting here and doing what i'm doing today i'd just laugh at you you're the first guy since my dad that i've ever heard mention hogan's goat yeah <laughs> so we come from i think we come from similar stock mike that that's hilarious that's hilarious well tell me this let's talk before before i let you go let's talk about the book a little bit you okay, know? Uh, and then I want to talk. You, you mentioned the movie, which I didn't know about. Yeah, well, the book is is, is a bestseller. Yep. It's a five star. It's a, by, by Honor Bound. It's about two guys, Tommy Norris and myself, both Medal of Honor recipients. Uh, that, that our friendship, uh, camaraderie is, it's like my brother said. I think you love Tommy more than you love me. I said I don't love anybody more than you, or but I love Tommy. But Tommy and I've been through things. It's not like you and I fighting in the hills, you know, punching each other in the nose. It was right. a whole different type of thing. So, and uh, and our friendship and our camaraderie is always there. Uh, he'll be coming in on the Sunday for my golf tournament that we're doing out at uh, out at Dallas Country Club. And talk uh, a little bit about that, so that the listener, if they want to, uh, 
well, we, we get involved we, next year might be too short now, but just yeah. where they can find well, out. Well, Connie and Rainey and I, uh, we bring in we bring in Medal of Honor recipients. We also sponsor uh, the everybody in the armed forces. We bring in a team for the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and uh, we bring in disabled vets, vets and stuff like that. So the guys will buy a foursome, and when they buy a foursome, we'll put a veteran with them, you know. Okay. And some of the Medal of Honor recipients don't play golf that much, but they only get out riding, laughing, giggling. Right. So we just have a great time, and uh, uh, Connie uh, really puts together her and Jeanette and them, and uh, we have a great team, and uh, the money goes straight to our it's our biggest fundraiser every year. Uh, I do speeches all around. And they write, they write the, I don't get paid, they write the check to the foundation. Right. So it's a good way for us to do it. To people like Panasonic and mm-hmm. Smith Barney and, I mean, uh, good Lord, banks, you know, investment guys. And, and to a lot of to people like Jim McInville or mm-hmm. which believes in the American yep. people or, yep. uh, or Corby Robinson, which mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, down and stuff. P- different people like that. And, and uh they write a check to the foundation. Dick Grazo, I do stuff for him. John Lee, I mean, guys, uh, Ken Langone started. You yeah, know, yeah, Home Depot. Home yeah, Home Depot. I, I actually and, got uh, to, I used to work for Home Depot. Yeah. Back whenever they hired Bob Nordelli. And so, well, Bob Nordelli's yeah. another guy that sponsors me, and really? Bob's a great guy. And, yep. you know, uh, just, uh, and Bob actually, they, they, they were the first major corporation that when you got called out of the reserves, mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he met. He matched the money where they the family didn't. And if they had a problem, the, at home or a refrigerator or something yep. like that, Home Depot took care of it. Then then Lowe's followed on, and then a lot of major corporations. Well, it's like I mentioned uh, Colin Barbado earlier. Uh, that's where Colin and I met because uh, the executive leadership program that I was in. Um, they actually Bob Nardelli implemented a program that they had at GE to hire as many JMOs as they could, mm-hmm. and, and, and that didn't mean you had to be a JMO. You could be general enlistment, whatever. But he had a heart for helping veterans and those that had that had come out of the military that were making that transition into civilian life. And Home Depot has always been one of the best companies for that. And uh, but yeah, that Bernie Marcus, Arthur Blank, Ken Lang, oh, that whole Arthur team, Blank, they're Bernie, unbelievable. And I mean. Uh, uh, Arthur Blank is such a great gentleman. Bernie is too, and and they're big supporters of the Medal of Honor yeah. Society. Uh, all three of them are, yeah. and actually, Ken and Dick and all these guys. I mean, great entrepreneurs, great yeah. Americans, settling our foundation, and they kind of, they you know, they've helped me with running businesses and yeah. taking their advice. And like I say, you got some of the smartest people in the damn world, <laughs> and you're a dumb idiot if you don't take their advice. <laughs> At least listen to them. That's right. They're brilliant guys. <laughs> so, uh, actually, Dick just called me uh, today. Actually, this is a book that he wanted me to sign to, to uh, really? for a friend of his. Um, well, well, funny about you probably know this. Uh, it's a it's a pretty well known story, but it ties to another. Friend of yours, that like you say, one of the great uh, individuals we lost, great Texans we lost, and Ross Perot. You know, Ross Perot was supposed to be one of the initial investors of Home Depot, but he didn't do it because it was either Bernie and Arthur or Bernie. They wanted a Cadillac, 
as part of the deal. They want a company cars and Cadillac, and Ross Pro said, no, I'm not going to invest in your, in your company. Because still the biggest <laughs> big I buy on the so. <laughs> He said, I'm not doing it. Uh, but, uh, but obviously, Ken Langone, he, he saw. And also, here's another little Well, bit. Ken Langone was uh, Ross Perot's CFO. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that was the tie. Ken went ahead and did it. So it's just it's funny how that, that all comes full yeah. circle. If they want to. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. Uh, Mike's giving me some information about the, the tournament and the uh, the foundation. I'm going to have all this in the show notes. I want to make sure that everybody okay. knows how to get to you and uh, and what this is. And if you want to, uh, if you want to see, like on Facebook, you can go to at LTM or LT Lieutenant Michael Thornton. At that's the Facebook. And then uh, would you want me to give Connie's email out because she runs the foundation? Yeah, yeah, she runs. Yeah, so C Bowsher. Did I pronounce that right, Mike? Uh, no, Connie Boucher. Boucher. See, that's an East Texan trying to yeah. pronounce a, <laughs> a, a, a French accent. Uh, Connie Boucher, but cboucher at themetfund.org, or you can call them at 214-720-0696. And I'm going to have this information in the show notes so that if you all want to get involved with uh, with the, uh, the Met Fund, I think it's obviously you've heard that it's a great cause uh, led by great people. And uh, – Last thing, there's a movie being made. There's a yep the, on the book. Uh, I'm working with Sylvester Stallone and Mel Gibson right now, and uh, I mean, you couldn't find anybody bigger. I mean, <laughs> golly! Somebody well, said who's going to play your part. I said I don't care. <laughs> well, again, it ain't going to be Stallone. I'm 23 know. <laughs> years old, man. Yeah. I don't think so. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah, but they're looking. To, we got writers and stuff, and uh, Mr. Stallone and I, Sly and I, have been talking this whole time. My wife and I have been in Costa Rica and. We finally got everything, the, the dots, the I's dotted and the T's crossed and all the other stuff, and so we're moving forward. Well, that's one of the things that's pretty cool, Mike. As you told the story, I mean, I grew up watching the Rambo movies, Chuck Norris, uh, Uncommon Valor, you know, all these, you know, uh, Platoon. Mm. You lived it. I mean, I watched movies, and you mentioned movies earlier that inspired you. Um, you lived it, and uh, that's what's so so remarkable. And I'm just and to be able to sit across the desk from you and hear the story in real time that uh, the the actions that you've taken to uh, protect our freedoms and to defend this country. Uh, first and foremost, I can't thank you again for for that for just for defending our freedoms, but also taking this time to um, come on the Texas Titans podcast, because if there's anyone now, look, I know you're a South Carolina boy, but uh, you're in Texas now, brother. So it's going to take a clay more mine to blow my ass out of here. I'll tell you that. <laughs> That's what I'm talking. That's what I'm talking about. So you are in every sense of the word, a Texas Titan. And unless there's anything else you need to deliver, man, I just, no, want, to I just want to thank everybody out there and, and ladies and gentlemen, and young kids and everybody listening to this podcast, you know, don't take this great country for granted. This, the, 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 the great country we live in has been written in blood. And uh, don't forget about the ones that are on the walls and everywhere else. You know, I don't think this great country, just on Veterans Day, I think it every day of my life. And I thank God that I'm part of this. And so take this opportunity in life to. As you can heard, my life wasn't a bowl of cherries. It was it was hard work for, and that's what I tell everybody: take this chance, this opportunity, and better your life and help people as you go along the way. Amen. Very well said, Mike. Thank you so much, sir. My honor, shipmate. <laughs> Hey folks, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Hey, do me a favor. 
go out and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. And also, don't forget to go to jasonrightnow.com and subscribe to the Vitruvian Letter. That is my weekly newsletter where I am encapsulating all the things that I've got going on to improve always and always. And finally, if you wouldn't mind, go to The Jason Wright Show on YouTube. Subscribe, leave a comment. And until we meet again, remember to always endeavor to improve. Always and always. This has been a Texas Titans media production. Thank you so much for listening. Until we meet again, I am out.